1997, I attended this large rally with my dad in Washington, D.C. It brought together almost a million Christian men from states all over the country together for a whole day event that included speakers and singing and worship and a lot of time spent in prayer. For me, it was really a remarkable experience. It was one of the largest gatherings of any kind ever held on the National Mall. It was a historic event. Uh, and I was only an adolescent at the time, but I, I remember it very vividly. I remember this endless sea, it felt like, this endless sea of men raising their hands in song, kneeling in prayer together, all there to, to recommit themselves to, to a life of faith and service to Christ, to being truthful and dependable in their relationships with one another, to forgiving each other, to being, in the words of the organizers themselves, to being promise keepers. You might have heard of this organization before. Um, if you were a Christian man at that time, you may very well have attended one of their events. Promise Keepers was an organization that was started in 1990 by this former football coach, Bill McCartney. And he began to this organization that started holding large rallies for Christian men. Now, the one I attended in Washington, D.C. in 1997, that, that was unquestionably their largest event that they ever did. But they had others that were very highly attended before and even after that. It Promise Keepers itself was a really fascinating movement for a variety of reasons. One thing was it Promise Keepers was successful at gathering large groups of men for a serious religious event. Men are often seen as less religious and less committed to religious events than women. So in and of itself, just getting a bunch of men together, that was an achievement. Promise Keepers was also, on the one hand, a very strongly conservative, a culturally conservative movement, but it was also one that was very outspoken and very focused on the problems of racial division and racial reconciliation. But you know, one of the most interesting things about that movement, to me, one of the most interesting things about the movement is the name itself. The hundreds and thousands of men who attended these events at different times, they were responding to a call to be something specific. They were challenged to become something, to be men of integrity, to be men who are dependable, men you could count on. They were responding to this call to be promise keepers, men who kept their word. Or to use the word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 5 when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, they were responding to the call to faithfulness. That's what these men were committing themselves to. Now, this word that Paul uses in Galatians, this word for faithfulness, it's actually the Greek word pistis. And it can usually, it's often translated as faith, but sometimes it can mean faithfulness. And this word is used in scripture to describe God himself. Now, take the Psalms, for instance. In Psalm 25, verse 10, we read, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. 
And Psalm 36 says something very similar. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. And then again, the same thing in Psalm 33. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. The faithfulness of God, it's not just something the Psalms talk about. It's also something that Christians regularly sing about. You'll probably be familiar with that great American hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It was written in 1923 by an American hymn writer named Thomas Chisholm, and he was writing it and in response and sort of in being inspired by the words of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, which say this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, we read in Lamentations. Or to use the King James Version, great is thy faithfulness. This is a beautiful statement, and it's a very stirring hymn. But what exactly does it mean to describe God as faithful? And how does that, how does this description of God as the faithful one in Scripture, how does that help us to understand what Paul means when he talks about faithfulness as one of the fruits of the Spirit, as one of the qualities of Christ's likeness? Well, the the biblical scholar Christopher Wright He has a really good definition of faithfulness. He says that a faithful person is someone who is trustworthy, someone you can count on. Faithful people, he says, keep their word. They do what they promise. And more than that, faithful people are those who show themselves to be trustworthy over a long period of time. Faithful people are committed. They're in it for the long haul. You don't have to check up on them. You don't have to worry that Even if they did a good job last week, they might let you down this week. Faithfulness is the character of somebody you know you can simply rely on all the time. And that's what the Bible means when it speaks of God's faithfulness. It means that God is trustworthy, that you can count on Him, that He's dependable, that He'll do what He's promised to do, and you can rely on Him over the long haul. And you know, if you you read the story of the story of God with his travels with the people of God. Throughout Scripture, you can see that the people of Israel, they learned this over a long period of time in their relationship with God. They learned that he was trustworthy. In Genesis chapter 12, that's that's where their relationship with him first begins. When God speaks to a man named Abram and he, he promises to bless him and he promises that he will bless him and that he will bless his children and his children's children and all of the earth through him. That was how Israel's relationship with their God started, with this promise, with God's commitment to them. And over time, over many, many successive generations, God showed himself to be faithful to that promise. The same can't really be said for Israel, of course. They were often unfaithful. They broke their promises regularly. They were untrustworthy. You know, if Christopher Wright is correct in saying that faithfulness describes the someone, describes the character of someone who you can rely on, really the only thing about Israel that you could say you can rely on is that you can rely on them 
to be people who are going to be unfaithful, who are going to break their word. And yet, through it all, God persevered. He didn't waver in the promises that he made or in his commitment to them. You know, one of the most, one of the most beautiful portrayals of this, of what it means to be faithful, how God is faithful, comes in the book of Hosea, one of the Old Testament prophets. And in that book, the faithlessness of the people of Israel is portrayed through the story of an unfaithful wife, a wife that Hosea the prophet marries, this woman Gomer, who continues to engage in promiscuity and in adultery. She is continually faithless toward Hosea time and again. And yet her husband continues to bring her back, even after she has been unfaithful, even after she has had children. Despite all of her infidelity, Hosea remains faithfully committed to his wife. And that's, that's the book's portrayal of the faithfulness of God. And you know, this theme of God's faithfulness, this isn't just an Old Testament theme, how God was with the people of Israel. This is picked up in the New Testament as well. God is frequently described as faithful, that when we are faithless, he continues to be faithful. In fact, the New Testament says that it's actually in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's where we see the clearest picture of what it means for God to be faithful because it is in and through Jesus that we see just how far God was willing to go to keep the promises that he made to his people. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. God is faithful. All of his promises find their yes, their fulfillment, their perfect completion, God's commitment in the person of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, I have to say, we, we now live at a time when this quality of faithfulness, it seems to be in short supply. And you could tell that that's true just if you pay attention to how little trust people feel toward one another these days. There's a very extensive social study that's conducted on a regular basis by the University of Chicago called the General Social Survey. They've been doing it since 1972. And it has shown, recent iterations of this General Social Survey have shown that we Americans now feel more distrust toward our institutions and toward our leaders and even toward one another than we ever have. And among younger people, this distrust is only higher. In fact, in one study taken several years ago, only 19% of millennial generation people, only less than one in five of them, said that they thought that most people could be trusted. And 71% of those surveyed said that they thought that most people would take advantage of you if they had the opportunity. And that's a sad commentary on where we are as a country because it means that we've really lost trust in each other. We've lost faith in each other's ability to be faithful. We don't believe that people are trustworthy, that we can count on them, that they will tell the truth or keep their promises. Evidently, there are a great many people today, and maybe you're one of them. There are a great many people who simply 
do not believe that they can rely on the people around them. And an attitude like that, that kind of distrust, it has serious consequences. As David Brooks, the New York York Times columnist, put it in a recent article that he wrote, when people in a church lose faith or trust in God, the church collapses. When people in a society lose faith or trust in their institutions and in each other, the nation collapses. So that's what faithfulness is. And that's why it's important. To be faithful is to be like God, to be dependable, to be trustworthy, to be committed, a person that can be relied on over the long haul. And without faithfulness, trust begins to erode and people become cynical and self-reliant. What can we do about this? How can we respond? How can we live out the call that is on our lives as Christians to be people who are characterized by faithfulness? Well, the first thing that we need to keep in mind is that faithfulness itself, faithfulness begins with faith. Now, as I said earlier, the word that Paul uses in Galatians, this word that we translate as faithfulness, it can also simply mean faith. And there's a reason that those two concepts are so closely related to one another. In order to become a trustworthy person, someone that others can count on, you have to first be a person who knows how to trust. And as Christians, of course, the primary way that we learn to trust is by being reminded again and again, just as Israel was, to be reminded again and again about the trustworthiness of God himself. And that's one of the reasons that we gather together every for worship every week. We gather together to retell the story of God's faithfulness. We gather together to, to go up together and to receive the pledge in our hands, the pledge of his promises to us in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. And as we do this week in and week out, our faith is reinforced. And we learn how to trust and how to depend on God, this God who keeps his promises, this one whose every promise is yes in Jesus Christ. And you know, that trust, that in turn is what makes it possible for us to be trustworthy in our relationships with other people. Because we know that we can count on God, because he is faithful, that frees us not only to be faithful in obedience to God, to pledge him our allegiance because we can count on him. It also actually frees us to be faithful to one another. Uh, But that's not all. Faithfulness begins in faith. It's why faith and trust is so important. But it doesn't end there. Faithfulness also shows itself through commitment. Commitment seems to be an increasingly unpopular word these days. And maybe that shouldn't come as a great surprise to us. I mean, there's been a lot of change in our society. After all, it wasn't that long ago that most people's lives were pretty strongly defined by these long-term commitments that they had to people and places, often that really they didn't even choose. Commitments to, long-term commitments to jobs and to coworkers. Commitments to neighbors and to family, to spouses, uh, and even to their churches. But now we are in a much more mobile society. We move around a lot. Now that's less and less the case. 
Now it's far more common for someone to work for multiple companies over their lives and move around than spend a career investing in a single company or the single group of coworkers. And now that people move cities and they move houses more often, our commitments to our neighbors become less necessary and really more disposable. And the same thing goes even for our romantic relationships. Marriages are less permanent than they once were. They can't be counted on as much. And younger generations who've experienced those kind of broken marriages, they often feel more and more averse at really expressing any kind of clear commitment whatsoever to their romantic partners. In fact, I was reading an article about this recently. Many young people have started avoiding the word dating altogether, simply because to speak of dating implies a level of commitment that they'd rather avoid. It's more common now for young people to simply say, well, we're seeing each other, or we have a thing, and just leave it at that. And of course, we do the same thing with our churches. You can call it church shopping or church hopping. You can call it whatever you want. But commitments to church life, they're not what they once were. You know, back when people just went to whatever closest church belonged to their denomination, they had to learn how to be faithful, even when other people disappointed them. But now... Now, when the church disappoints us, many of us, we just choose to leave, go find a new group of people. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to criticize other people here. Maybe that sounds harsh coming from a member of the clergy. I know what this aversion to commitment feels like. I see it in myself all the time. I see it in my, my hesitation to put things on my calendar with people. I see it even in the way I relate to my kids. You know, my children, they're always asking me to do things with them, always asking me, Daddy, can we, can we do this or that? And they want to know when. When can we do it? And truth be told, more often than not, I find myself giving them very non-committal answers. Maybe, I say, when they ask me. And then when they ask me when, I, I don't know. We'll see. Now, sometimes it's because I really don't know, but... Most of the time, if I'm honest, it's just because I don't want to commit myself to something. Because if I don't make any promises, then I don't have to worry about keeping any promises. But that's not good for my children. It doesn't encourage them to have faith in me, to learn to trust in me, to trust in my word, to depend on me. And it certainly doesn't, for me, resemble what it means to live like Christ. God was not afraid of committing himself to people or making people promises. In fact, you could say that's what God does best. He commits himself. He makes promises. He pledges himself to do something, promises that we can trust. And because we can trust him to keep his promises, because we don't have to worry about whether he'll change his mind, you and I, we are actually free to do the same to commit ourselves to other people in return by the gift of God's own faithfulness to us we too can live in this quality that Paul describes this quality of faithfulness <music> 